I mentioned to Henry earlier, I don't think I could, any of you guys would have been hard to come behind. It's, uh, his, he, as Henry opened up chapter 13 in the book of Acts for us, <clears throat> he mentioned that it was a critical book, and it is indeed, and in that it begins the third part of the gospel being extended to the world. And his appointed leader, as we saw, would become Paul. Paul was a powerfully gifted man. Of course, you know the story of Paul. And uh, he certainly was determined to know anything, nothing else other than Jesus Christ, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, his sail was set, as it were. Uh, if you read the book by, what's his name? A.W. Tozer, to set it to sail. There was a poem in there, and it kind of went like uh, one ship drives east and another one drives west with the self-same winds they blow. But it's a set of the sail and not the gales that shows us the way to go. Paul, sails were set, perhaps on the Damascus Road, maybe even before that, maybe even when he was a little kid, because God knows the plans for our life from beginning to end, and he had already fixed Paul to be the one, as Paul says, there was a door open to him to take the gospel to the world. <clears throat> so something else A.W. Tozer said in there, he says, so let us then set ourselves in the will of God. If we do this, we will certainly find ourselves moving in the right direction, no matter which way the winds blow. Question is, are ourselves set tonight? Have I determined in my own heart, no matter what, to be fixed upon that which God has my life to do or has for me to do in my life? The set of the sails. So picking up where Henry left off here again in chapter 13, upon leaving Paphos, the work having been being completed there in Cyprus, which is Barnabas' hometown, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, being saved, believing in the gospel, committing his life, a high official, leaving that island. They had been there about five months, perhaps even some other disciples there too, setting up that church. Paul would not return back to Cyprus, however, Barnabas would, and we'll find that out in chapter 14 towards the end, actually 15, when the dissension rises between them over John Mark. You'll see Paul taking off with Silas on his second missionary journey. And Barnabas, along with his nephew John Mark, will return back to Cyprus. I thought about that to me. You know, there's some saying over who wrote the book of Hebrews. And if it wasn't Paul, I like to think it would have probably most likely been Barnabas. He spent more time with Paul and he would probably talk more like Paul, having spent a lot of time with him, understanding Paul's theology and how he presented the gospel. But of course, I like to think firstly that Paul wrote Hebrews. <laughs> Many of us will probably agree. But uh, Paul is, uh, Barnabas, as we'll see also through the text, that he did have an affinity or relationship with Paul. He was an encourager. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm going to bring it up again. Nerves do that. Don says, you know what? You're around family. And he's right. All y'all, my brothers and sisters, are my sons and daughters over here. But for the most part, y'all brothers and sisters, so if I blow it, you guys will let me know. So. Great die. So you can't, Don says. 
So to the work at Antioch in Pisidia. I think I'll leave, by, I'll, I'll leave by reading the entire text and then come back. It's kind of lengthy. Lord willing, we'll get through it. I hope Tony won't be too upset with me if I don't. <laughs> Looking at verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when he departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The word of this people, or the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel, a prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also, or also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, or not until, is what the text is implying. Before his first coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John preached his baptism to everyone in Israel before Jesus came on the scene. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which is made to the fathers. God has fulfilled for us or fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despise this marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, but one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. We say hallelujah. Right? Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue to the, in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of, the ever, of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. All this took place in a matter of a week. Yeah, really, wow. I mean, this is a powerful thing that happened here. And we'll see as we take a look at the journey in verses 13 through 15. A powerful all that Paul went through to get to this door that he said was open. He saw that it was a door open for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be given to not only the Jews, for them to understand their history, as he'll show them, but to the Gentiles, you and I. All the way to today, the gospel is still being pushed forth by the Holy Spirit or led through men and women. The church doors, they're wide open for those that are ready to receive Christ. It won't stop until Jesus takes us away. There's no end to the book of Acts. It keeps on going through the power of the Holy Spirit. You hear our pastors speak oftentimes how we're too busy. Many pastors and people are trying to work these things by the power of the flesh rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us to get the work that God wants done, done. That's why we ask Jesus to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Henry, Henry mentioned last week, uh, we don't hear that much anymore. You know, we, he talked about how in the 70s, the Jesus movement, and on into the 80s, how the Holy Spirit was mentioned a whole lot more. And he's right, we should mention it a whole lot more because it's the Holy Spirit, it's him in us that does the work and accomplishes that for which God has sent us to do. Uh, so we see that in verse 13, Paul tells us, or it tells us that Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. And we noted the significant transition here in verse 9, where Saul, who was called Paul, the change of his name from the Hebrew name to the Greek name took place. It was Paul who was filled with the Holy Spirit and stared intently at Elamus. I believe, again, like I said earlier, that Paul was encouraged along by Barnabas. 
You know, he brought Saul before the apostles back in Jerusalem when the, when the, when the, when Jerusalem, the, when they couldn't handle Paul. Paul just got converted. Here he is on the scene and he's preaching the gospel and he wanted to go in there and talk to the, Jew, the Jews and the council when they wouldn't let him in. And who came along? Barnabas. Barnabas the encourager. Barnabas come right alongside Paul, and that's what he did in the beginning. Remember, he, he came and he gave all of his stuff, and his name being Joseph, they changed his name to Barnabas the encourager. He loved Paul, I believe, tremendous amount. He saw Paul's uh, potential. He saw the Lord was using him. He also, and that was in chapter 9, verse 26 through 30, by the way. He also, after Paul got too hot there, even after Barnabas had brought him before the council, they had the shipping all back or shipping back off to uh, Damascus or Tarsus, remember? And he spent all that time there. And then when the council heard what was going on at the church in Antioch, how people were coming to the Lord, they were being blessed. They sent Barnabas to Antioch from Jerusalem. And Barnabas coming to Antioch saw the work that God was doing in there. He blessed the brethren. He told them to continue on in the grace of God. But what did Barnabas do? Bing, he thought about Paul again. He went to Tarsus. Now, I had been there some time. He went to Tarsus, brought Paul back to the church in Antioch. That's where the church was called. That's where the people of the church were first called Christians. And that would be in Acts chapter 11, 25. So Paul, or Barnabas, had an affinity for Paul. He understood the potential that he had. He saw the work of the Holy Spirit in him. So it was a natural, I believe, transition for Paul to move into his position of leadership. Particularly as we, come, as we come to what's going to be coming up here. Notice second. They were sailing from Paphos. They came to Perga. Turning from Cyprus, Barnabas was his native land. Barnabas, as you know, was from Cyprus. And here they are going to Pamphylia or, yeah, to the land Pamphylia, which was a district off the coast of Asia Minor. And they came to Perga. Now, they were near Paul's resident at this time, pretty close to it, so that he eventually would venture through it. The province of Pamphylia was about eight, and a half, eight to 12 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And for unexplained reasons, we see the third part of verse 13, John Mark departs from them. Now, John had been with them from the time they left uh, Jerusalem and came to Antioch. And he was with them before they left Antioch to begin this journey. He was with them when they were going through Cyprus while Paul was dealing with Elamis. And now here he is for some unexplained reason. He just, we say, bail. Commentators say many things. Some say he was homesick. He missed his mom and he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. By the way, John Mark's mother was Mary, whose house that Peter went to the night that he was released from jail by the angel. Mary being the sister or cousin, or sister, I would say, of John of Barnabas. He also, they also said that it was probably a dangerous trip, you know, and it was pretty was, but he had been with them some five years, so the sailing part, you know, you kind of rule that out. If he's been with them this long, what's so dangerous now? Uh, he was afraid, perhaps, of contacting malaria, as Paul, it is said, had caught it, so he left. For whatever his reasons were, again, I like what X says in his, uh, uh, introduction into this chapter he says that when you go back up to verse 2 in chapter 13 you read it it says as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Spirit said now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have sent to, to do we don't see Barnabas Saul and John Mark we see Barnabas and Saul so perhaps by the will of God it wasn't 
uh, intended for John to be with him through this journey. And you know, as well as I do, that God has a way of using the events and circumstances of our life to fulfill his plans. You may think you're going through some terrible stuff, but God has a plan for you if you're walking with him, if you're serving with him. He might be dealing with you to bring him to himself. He might be squeezing that prune, you know, trying to bring you to him. But trust this, he does have a plan for each of our lives. And obviously he had a plan for John because, you know, later on, Paul would ask for him. But even before, and yeah, he would ask for John Mark to come back and bring the parchments. But not until after him and Barnabas fell out over this guy in chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. I like Silas. Paul took Silas with him. There's some good stuff about Silas. was in verse 14, but when they departed from Perga, they came on to uh, Antioch and Pisidia. Now, the journey to Antioch and Pisidia, or Perga, there was no work done there in Perga. As you see, it seemed like things were moving pretty rapid. They didn't stay there any length of time. As Paul's custom is, as we'll see, he didn't stop off to uh, a synagogue. There probably wasn't one there. Might not have been enough people there. For whatever reasons were, they continued to move on. They would, however, come back, according to Acts 14.25, and they would complete the work at the end of his journey before they went back to Antioch, the home church, uh, as they made that circuit. Notice they went straight on from Perga to Pisidia, Antioch. Paul, it said, had to leave the lowlands and get to higher interior without delay, so they, they hurried straight on to Antioch, and, and they had to get to the higher elevations, which was about 3,600 feet, above sea level where he had hoped to recover from the malaria which he had been uh, brought seas under. And being on the low-lying sea level lands, it was moist air, mosquitoes and whatnot, he had to get away from that. And if this is the case, he had a difficult and tough journey ahead of him just to make it up to uh, Pisidia. This is another reason, like I said earlier, that is believed John Mark bailed out on him. and probably is. We don't know. Whatever the case, the Holy Spirit knows, and he wasn't there. As I said, this was a long, hard, and dangerous journey. It was about 100 miles north through the Tarsus Mountains for them to get up to that elevated level. And it was just the two of them, according to, according to commentators. So was Paul pulling Barnabas sick, perhaps, and encouraging him. And then Barnabas encouraging him, let's get this thing up, let's get up here. But again, as I said earlier, Paul was fixed. He recognized his ministry. He knew what he was going to do. And as we'll see, there, uh, Antioch, the Pisidia, was, a, was probably the most favorable place to, to get to to begin this ministry, the work that God had sent them for. So they entered the southern part of the Roman, uh, Roman province of Galatia to Antioch, the Pisidian. And the reason it's Antioch, the Pisidian, by the way, is because it's distinct from Antioch, Syria. You've got two Antiochs going on here, just like John Mark or Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They do that to distinguish whom they're talking to, talking about. So here we have Antioch, the Pisidia, which also means that it wasn't actually in Pisidia. It's set on the regions, on the outer regions of Pisidia, hence Antioch, the Pisidia. And that's how you come to that. But Antioch was a good place to go because it was a large city. As we'll see. So the, and going on through 14, they went on into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And then they sat down. 
Hmm. Now, at, just reading this at a first glance, they went to, uh, to the synagogue and sat right down. It's like as soon as they got there, they went in and they sat down. But I like what uh, Linsky says. He kind of points out that getting ahead of myself. He went in and sat down. The idea is Paul is going to the Jews first. And here's where the work begins, right here. Now when they had, and there's a, there is a, in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 4, he talks about that. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and he's in, he ends up in Thessalonica, I believe it is, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews identifying Paul's custom. And he picks it up from Jesus, if you go to Luke chapter 4, and we'll get there. But he, through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, and that's the same thing it says about Jesus, by the way, in Luke chapter 4. He went into them. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And there's that Silas, guys. Acts 17, 1 through 4. This was Paul's custom to go into the synagogues. Again, like I said, there probably wasn't a synagogue or enough men in Perga at the time to form a synagogue. Now, this is what Linsky says. He says, after Paul and Barnabas had found lodging, this is after they got to Antioch, they found lodging, and most likely they introduced themselves to the Jewish leaders. And when the Sabbath came, then they sat down. Remember, he went in there and sat down. But it was on the Sabbath. And this was normal. A synagogue was to be established wherever there were as many as 10 Jewish men and had to be located close enough for faithful Jews to attend without breaking the Sabbath by exceeding the distance the rabbis allowed to walk to on a Sabbath day. This falls into that thing called a Mishnah. Familiar with that term? This is the fence that the Jews' leaders had built around the law additional stuff that they had to do before they can get to the law or less but it was a code if I used to, uh, a law now the rulers of the synagogue in verse 15 the rulers of the synagogue they asked them if they had a word of encouragement and this was after the reading of the law and the prophets which was a typical service and this is what it consisted of it consisted of the Shema this would be the first part hero Israel the Lord thy God the Lord is one they would introduce it like that, and then they would go through prayers, the scripture readings from the law and the prophets, as our text points out, and a sermon which Paul is about to give and a benediction following. So Paul and Barnabas being in a synagogue was not there by coincidence at the time that they walked in there, and it wasn't out of the ordinary for the ruler of the church to send his assistant to pick Paul and Barnabas to speak. The readings were the same everywhere. Commentators say readings were out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and Isaiah, which is probably right. 
Uh, if you go to Jesus in Luke 4.16, that's where I want to go, Jesus. Luke 4.16, I'll read it to you. Luke 4.16. Luke 4.16 gives you a good example of what the synagogue, uh, what how the liturgy actually took place in the synagogue. Jesus gives us the example. And it, I think it's, it's a good uh, example because Jesus is speaking about himself and it sets up what happens with Paul when he's proclaiming Jesus, how they rejected him. He's going to tell later on how the prophets, they hear it reading in the, uh, the reading in the synagogues every week and they, they didn't know him. And here Jesus is in verse 16 of Luke. He says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up. And stood up to read. And he was handed a book, or the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And notice what he says. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They had their Messiah right there. He was right there. This was long before Paul ever had to make this journey. This is long before the gospel had to ever get to where it is right now, in my estimation. Just think. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And he said, is not he here? They're going to read him now. Is this not Joseph's son? You know, Joseph, whose wife was pregnant. And we didn't know who she, it wasn't Joseph's baby. This is where they're going. <coughs> this is what they did. And he said to them, you will surely say the proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard or whatever we have, whatever you, we have done in the Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, surely I say to you. No prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the name of Elijah, or in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, this woman, the widow, and Naaman, as you know, were Gentiles. Jesus is pointing them to the Gentiles, and this is what they're going to do. They reject the gospel, and Paul, as I read later, says we turn to the Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus Christ is brought to us through the nation of Israel. And this is what Paul is setting up for in the synagogue. I mean, I can veer it right, but this is the idea. Paul, all that he's gone through, the malaria. Jesus said in chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, to Ananias, that, you know, Paul, he's going to go preach before Jews, kings, Gentiles, and he's going to endure much tribulation because of my namesake. And this is what Paul is going through. So the malaria incident was probably just the beginning of his troubles. As you see later on in chapter 14, they're going to stone him to death. And what does he do? He gets right back up and he continues preaching the gospel. There wasn't nobody like Paul. Maybe we're running. I'm running. It's probably what John Mark did. He ran. He's out of trouble. He said, forget it. I'm out of here, man. Who knows? 
this was not no easy journey. Paul was fixed, though. He, 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 he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't come to them preaching words with wisdom and all fancy and everything. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is his mission. And this is what's been passed on to you and I. Hallelujah. Preach the gospel. I, just through the studying of this, just through reading and, and, and getting a better understanding of the book of Acts, especially chapter 3, because it's to the extent, it's the extension of the gospel to the whole world, uh, just probably vaguely begin to understand our position in Christ. I mean, I, Acts is right. We don't have time to sit around and be idle. It's, it's crazy, you know. <laughs> we need to be busy about what God has called us to do. We need to be reaching out to our family members. I fall there, guys, so we need to be reaching out to people that we work with. And just of late, uh, you know, reading Acts, the shell has been being getting in the crack. I've been lazy. I'm not happy about it. So Paul, he knew what he was in for. Notice also in this text here, verse 15, the rulers of the synagogue, they sent for them. Now, the rulers of the synagogue, they were local elders and they had the oversight of the synagogue. They were the ones who appointed the rulers. It was the elders. And this was only if the city was big enough for the, it was enough men to do this. As we'll see, the local elders had the oversight of the synagogue. They would appoint a ruler a layman who cared for the building, and this layman also selected participants in the Sabbath services. So you see, what they did was not out of the ordinary. It wasn't because all of a sudden, you know, like later we'll see, they got this guy, Paul and Barnabas here. They, they, although they did seize that opportunity, but for reasons unknown to them, they were going to get a whole, uh, it was just going to be a, a mouthful of stuff, if you will. So the rulers had an attendant. One of whose duties was to deliver the scrolls, as we saw the scroll being delivered to Jesus. There was an attendant that gave him there. So this is in line with what was going on. And they also had a special place to keep those scrolls. And they really took care of them. Notice again. Notice next as the order of service moves to the ceremony. The reading of the law and the prophets had been read. So that part had been fulfilled. Paul and them sat down. And they heard that. Now the invitation is given to Paul and Barnabas to offer a word of encouragement to the people. And this was at. Every Sabbath opportunity, by the way, or every Sabbath, every Sabbath, even all the way to today, the reading of the law and the prophets take place. I, got, I have a, a customer, a couple of them, and they have their calendars that are Jewish, the best Jacob's uh, temple. And so you go in there, you do your service, and you can get the calendar from them. And every Sabbath, there's a reading of the law. In fact, the only time I didn't notice it was this Saturday, because I think this was the week of Feast of Tabernacles. And there's some other event going on. But every Saturday of that one, and you skip that and go into October, there's a reading. Of the, I think here, uh, last Sabbath was Deuteronomy and, uh, and Malachi, I think. But th this takes place every Sabbath. And it's yearly, a day, and regularly. And you could date all the way back to the day that Paul walked into the synagogue here. And you could actually track and find exactly what they were teaching that day. Again, commentator says it was Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And as we go through here, you tend to agree because some of the things when he opens up, it's Deuteronomy. When he gives a prophetic 
verse. It's Isaiah, you know, so it's in line with what uh, what the history says. Also note that this wasn't an every Sabbath opportunity to have Paul, the rabbi, the Pharisee of Pharisees, a famous pupil of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and Barnabas, a Levite of the country of Cyprus and also a resident of Jerusalem, come to Pisidia. You know, it's not like these guys floated through there every other weekend. So when you got Paul coming in here with the potential that he has and the reputation, and if you spent time with him prior to the Sabbath, they understood who he was and they knew who Barnabas was. So they would welcome the opportunity to have them to be the ones to encourage the people. The idea behind encouraging the people was to encourage them to continue on in obeying the word that was preached to them through the reading of the law and the prophets. Not for Paul to expound and take them right back to the history, give them a history view is what he's actually going to do, and point to them the promised Messiah that came through David. That's essentially what's going on here. Paul is going to walk them through their history, bring them to the promised Messiah. From the promised Messiah, he's going to walk them through to the resurrected Messiah, the Savior of the world, and then through justification. And I'm giving you all this now in case we don't get there. <laughs> but yeah, he's going to, here's what I saw too studying the book of Acts. You know, if you read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you read uh, Romans, if you read First and Second Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy, this book right here, just Acts chapter 13 through the end, 28, you will see the development of all of those books that Paul wrote. In fact, I was talking, it's not here, we were talking, uh, brother, uh, we were, honey, Harold. Saturday, we were all over there, and I was talking to Harold. I didn't see him in the middle over there, but we were talking, and, and every time, well, you know, no, well, I, but I'm but I'm talking about Harold though, because but all three of y'all was there Saturday. I, I saw all three of y'all, but Harold is missing, and I'll see him back there. Anyway, I'm sorry, guys. Anyway, he's like, yeah, Harold. Harold was talking to me, and he was really just, you know, encouraging me about things, and we were sharing. But every time we would say somebody from the Bible, whose name do you think came up? It was exactly. It was all New Testament. It was Paul? Paul. This he wrote most of the New Testament. From what I understand, though, Luke wrote the two biggest books in the New Testament. That being the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Thanks to Acts, I learned that. I didn't know that, man. But yeah, he, in fact, he wrote a great percentage, Luke did, the two books take up a large percentage of the New Testament. In fact, the book of Acts completes the New Testament and carries us into the other epistles. That's the pivotalness of the, how pivotal this book of Acts is. Without Acts, we don't have nothing joining us to those other letters. Uh, I didn't see that. <laughs> okay, now the light is on. So that encouraged me to go and, and read more, and that's why well, I've got all of, you know, that's why this is working the way it is. All right. Mm. Thank you. So, like I said, this was no every weekend event. This opportunity they seized upon to have Paul and Barnabas give this word of encouragement. Note also that, and I think I mentioned earlier, this was the most important city in that part of Galatia. You know, they're in Asia Minor now, modern-day Turkey. And you can get the letter Galatians back to these guys. It said that it went up to the north part of Galatia, but 
he's going to cruise around through the southern part, leaving Presidio Antioch, heading Iconium, coming down to Lystra, Durba, and then youping back up to Presidio again, and then before he comes back down uh, to, to uh, Perga and do a work, and then Italia, and then they'll sail back to Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, sail back to Antioch, where the home church is, completing the first missionary journey there. Henry also mentioned in the back of your Bibles, there are maps, and I, I paid more attention to this map this time probably, or in the last few months than I have before, really zeroing in and understanding what's going on when I see the missionary journeys start to fall into place. So Lord bless me that way. And so I'm here trying to give you some of that. Saul, as I said earlier, was first introduced to us as Paul in verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at Elamus, son of the devil. Now, having been transitioned by the Holy Spirit to the lead position, Paul, in verse 16, addresses the congregation. By the way, I'm not the only one that writes notes around here. <laughs> I think there's about four of us that do this. <laughs> That's right. I had to throw that out there. <laughs> I can. <laughs> oh, Notice he addresses the congregation in verse 16. Firstly, to those fearing God, the proselytes, the Gentiles of Judaism. And he says to them here, uh, those two groups of people are there. Eventually, those two groups will become one. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Jesus broke that middle partition between us, and now we are one in Christ. As for the moment, though, you've got the Jews, and you have the Gentiles, the proselytes, those who are converted. And as we'll see later on, it's probably more Gentile proselytes in this city than there are Jews. However, there's a lot of Jews there because you hear the term rulers. It's... it's uh, uh, plural rather than singular so that implies that there's more than one ruler and so there's probably two if there's two there's probably ten men to one ruler you got 20 you can multiply that on with that simple uh, equation 330 and so forth and so forth but this was a, again the best place in the city for the church to be located it's the largest church there it's the heart of the area that Paul is going to be moving around to later on, around about the second time he's going to pick up from there and then head on over to Italy, Rome, you know, some of those areas there, some of the other areas up in there. He'll cross over the river, that's where he'll have, or the lake water where he'll have get shipwrecked and all that later on, a third, fourth missionary journey. But it'll be a, a base for him to come back to. Actually, he's going to write a letter to these guys, right? Because when he leaves, now that it comes to mind, here he is on the first journey, and he's preaching the gospel to him is what he's going to be doing. And then he's going to get back, and around a third missionary journey, he's going to have to write a letter to him because he's going to say, oh, foolish Galatians, who must be with you? How could you turn so soon from that which I gave you? You know, he birthed them. He gave them the, he gave them the gospel. And no sooner he got away, as things happen, we start to doing this if we don't stay focused, if we don't keep setting ourselves or setting our course, staying on course. So they begin to drift back over to the Judaizer way. Plus, there's many of them there that didn't like Paul anyway. So once he's out of the way, the influence is strong, and they want to pull him back into there for their own purposes. And he tells them that for their own flesh needs. They do this out of spite, but excess, what, fungus among us? 
that kind of sticks, right? So that's going to be there. So I don't want to drift. He says to them, listen, hear. Uh, and uh, I've got pretty familiar with Linsky. He says that the authoritative aorist imperative is used here. And this denotes a command, this term to listen. He's not saying, hey, listen to me, guys. This is not a request. He's saying, listen. Not only that, he does it like this. He stood up, he waved his hand, and he got their attention. And he said, hey, listen, more or less. He, uh, he might have shouted it out for all I know. This is how serious the message is. He's not here to, I wrote it here, he's not here to, I don't want to get too far ahead. This could also mean that there was a large amount of proselytes present there too. He wanted to make sure they saw him having been given this opportunity to preach the gospel to these men of Israel and those who fear God. Paul really wants him to know and understand that what he has to say is important. He knows that he wa- he knows that what he wasn't brought to the synagogue to do was to sermonize this previous message. They call them lections. He wasn't there to ex- to sermonize these things. You know, Lord, you know, we thank you, and and I'm glad I had this opportunity. No, he's here to give them the gospel. He's here to show them how, through history, God fulfilled His promise of a savior to Israel. fact that's a good title if you will for the next part of this text here going from verse or yeah verse 17 to 23 you might look at it as Israel a savior Jesus Lansky kind of divided it up into three portions and I kind of used some of it but from 17 to verse 23 you're going to see Israel's history leads them to Jesus in 24 to 30 you see, God fulfilled his promise to Israel by raising him from the dead. And in 31 to 38, in him alone is forgiveness and justification. Notice verse 17, Paul opens up with his first recorded sermon. Paul begins his sermon or his address as Stephen had uh, begun his defense by a review of Israel's history. Stephen, however, pointed to Israel's disobedience in rejecting the Christ. You can get that in Acts chapter 7 through 37, 39, or in Acts 51 or, and 51 verses 51 and 53. Stephen addressed their unwillingness to accept Jesus as their savior. The Hellenists were hearing this gospel that Stephen was preaching and they didn't like it. So they raised up some to say things against Stephen that wasn't true. It got to the high priest. He called Stephen before him and he asked him, are these things true? So where does Stephen start? With the high priest at Israel's history. <laughs> this is Stephen and this is a high priest and he's going to give the high priest a history lesson. And they didn't like that too much coming towards the end because everything that he said to them was true. It says that they were pierced through and through. He penetrated that hard heart of theirs, and they did not like it. They stoned him to death. In fact, some of the people were throwing their clothes at somebody's feet, who we're talking about right now, you remember? <laughs> so all was standing there giving approval to this. Amazing. I don't know if I said it yet, but Saul 
was probably brought up according to the Mishnah at five, you know, they, from five to 30, they were trained in certain facets of the Jewish culture, of their religion. He was born in Tarsus, went to universities there, the Greek universities, and he came up under, in Jerusalem under the feet of Gamaliel. And at five, he was for the scriptures, or they were reading, you know, the, the moms would always say to their babies, Jesus is Lord, or Yahweh is Lord, Yahweh is Lord. But raised in the scriptures, I think about 10, he was ready for the Mishnah at 10. And then at 15, he was ready for the, the Talmud, and there was other facets of this that he was ready for. But at graduations in his life, at 18, he was ready for the bridal chamber. At 20, he was ready for his profession to go into his trade. And at 30, he was ready for... Uh, what's the term? He was at 30. He was taking Christians and persecuting them by that time. You don't know exactly how old Paul was when he's standing at the feet of these people throwing their clothes there. It's really interesting because if you track it, you don't know if Paul was around or in the regions of Jesus at the time they were growing up. They weren't too far apart in age, I don't think. It's really interesting study. So, you don't know if he had heard things about Jesus or not, but anyway... He was well versed. So he began his defense. Paul's defense, actually, it wasn't a defense. It was actually he pointed to he pointed or he showed God's grace, bringing about the fulfillment of Israel's promised Messiah. This was the difference between his sermon and Stephen's. Fulfillment of Israel's promised Messiah, and he reviews from Exodus to King David. Verse 17. The God of his people Israel chose our fathers. Hmm. Chose our fathers. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse through 8. Where he says, for thou art holy people with the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep his oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeem you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There is verse 17 right there. He brought them up with an uplifted arm when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. He allowed them to grow. They, ex he didn't, they didn't get exalted by stature, but they were exalted in number. They were incredibly large when they came out, 70 going in. A couple million coming out, he exalted them in that manner. And not only that, he brought them out through Moses, his vessel, but he brought them out. And this is what Paul is pointing to. He starts with the nation of Israel becoming a nation after the Exodus. So he's pointing them to history. For the Jews in the synagogue, they're getting a history lesson, a review. But he's going to point some things out. For the Gentiles in their synagogue there, they're like getting history. It's like you and I sit in history class getting Jewish history. In a sense, but they're getting it, but they become a part of it through Jesus Christ. They get to see the plan of God, sending the Savior and salvation coming through him for everyone that believes. And he'll point that out to us later. But this is what's taking place here. I tell you that now in case I don't get that point to you later. This guy is all over the place.
<laughs> Verse 18, thank you. Now for a time about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Notice this comes from Numbers 14.34. For every day, 40 days they were in. Uh, Joshua, if you remember, sent out the, or Moses sent out 12 spies, right? And they were in the Canaan scoping it out for 40 days. And then it came out of there and 10 of the 12 that went in gave a bad report. It caused the heart of the people to wane and be scared. Oh, we can't do this. They forgot how powerful was God. I mean, after everything that happened, isn't it like us? Oh, they would just, God had opened up the Red Sea. He brought them out of Egypt in some of the strangest ways. He had the pillar of fire by night and a pillar of uh, cloud by day leading and guiding them. He gave them everything, and yet they didn't believe him. So uh, for 40 years, one year for every day that they were in there, he cost, it cost them a whole generation. But yet God was faithful. He waited. He carried them. He waited on them. And that's what the text is saying here. Now, for a time of about four years, he put up with their ways. He bore them as if with a child, as if a man bears his son and takes care of him despite his disobedience, you know. Verse uh, 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And you know, the lands that were just, that he brought out of the uh, nations. They were all the Izzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites, and it was about three or four other ones. But he wiped those people all out of there and brought them into the land of Canaan. That land is theirs today where they are, by the way. That's the land of Canaan. God promised it to the Jews from Abraham, and that's the end of the matter. <laughs> Psalm 95.10. Oh, that's another verse. Better not do that. I really mess up. Verse 19 through 20, I said that God destroyed those seven nations. And because of their failure to complete the campaigns of taking all the land that Joshua had taken to, you remember that? We're going to go through, I think we'll have a piece of that going into Judges. But they had to complete these campaigns in order to obtain that land. God had told them, go in there and wipe these people out. And they failed to complete it according to uh, uh, Joshua, or we'll see later on in Judges. God gave them judges. They were in there. They became servants to these people in the lands where they didn't wipe them out. So they would go through this cycle of sin, servitude, and then God would save them, salvation. So you'll see that cycle. And it was a continual downward spiral in the book of Judges. We're going to take on Judges, and so you'll see it a lot. But this is the cycle, and it went on for some uh, 40 years or so, for a long time until the prophet Samuel. And then... Samuel getting older, his boys not following the Lord. The people, began, the elders, it says, came to him and said, uh, give us the king. And in comes uh, Saul, right? And, when he just, and after that, he gave them judges, or I'm going to verse 21. And after that, where afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, and that's where they are now. And Saul, or Samuel, was pretty upset. And the Lord had to tell him they weren't rejecting him or Samuel. But Samuel, they rejected me. God was king. They had gotten rid, wanted to get rid of the theocracy. They didn't want God no more in their life. And that's like us today or people today. We don't need God, you know, I can the master of my own ship or I'm the pilot of this car here and God is my co-pilot or whatever the case may be. People throw off the idea that there is a God and we don't need one. 
But we do need God in our lives. We just don't realize it. So they tossed off God and God, what did he do? God is merciful. And it's what Paul is showing him. He's showing him God's mercy and grace despite their disobedience because the promise is coming. That's the end result. God had promises long before these people are here, long to their fathers. That's why they always go back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The promises to them, God is holding on to. He will not relent. He makes a promise and he keeps it. And this is the red vine running through here. Jesus is on his way. As I said earlier, unto Israel, a nation, unto Israel, a savior. And that's where he's going. So he gave them Saul. And the next thing you read, pretty much before that verse is done, he gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And that, the text doesn't show us that, but that's what the author said here. And when he had removed him, notice he gave them Saul, and then he removed Saul. Saul, as you know, fell on two occasions. One, he fell to wipe out all the Amalekites. Remember that? Two, he fell and usurped the, response of, usurped the role of, of Samuel by offering a sacrifice. He was a king. He wasn't supposed to do or mess with the office of Saul, of Samuel, I'm sorry, of the prophet. And he did. And that was the moment that Samuel, or Samuel told him that he was, no longer, he was no longer in God's heart. God's heart was set on David. And the next verse, I believe, says so. He raised up for them David as king. God had already had his, his eye on David, a little lad, dealing with his sheep, killing bears and tigers. Whipping slings, you know. He was pretty good with that sling. But God had his eye on David. David wrote many songs probably at a young age and coming up. So he was a man after God's heart. And that's what God declared. He testifies, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And as you know, up until about chapter 10, David was fine. And he had his faults. But that shows that God can use anybody. And I believe David came back. But we're all sinners and we fall short of God's grace. And if we take our eyes off the prize, we're in trouble. And David did that. He had his faults, but God loved him. He loved me so much. So in verse 23, he says, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. This promise, this promise was that from the rod or from the, let me read this. I'm aware. He said there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is a promise. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is according to the promise. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Psalm 132. This is a promise of the Messiah coming through the seed of David. The promised seed. A savior. Jesus. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now that verse right there tells us right there, point blank, he was going to save his people. This promise was to Gabriel, or to, uh, from a vision that uh, John had, and I, not John, I'm sorry, Joseph. Remember, he was laying down, and he was trying to figure out what to do. You know, Mary's pregnant, and then the Holy Spirit came to him and told him, hey, don't worry or the angel, the vision came to him and the angel told him not to worry because that which is in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. This, speaking of the virgin birth, 
So they tried to knock the line of Joseph because he wasn't literally Jesus' father. But Mary was also in, in David's line through Nathan, if you study the history. Nathan was a son of David as well. And that's the lineage that Mary came through. So they both were of the royal seed. But it couldn't be Joseph because of Kaniah messing up years and years ago. But Mary, a virgin birth, which was prophecy from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. This is all going on here, and Paul is just throwing it out there, you know, and, and I imagine that the, the Jews, they have to be like, wow, Paul is ex giving a, an expository here. He, he, they read the law. He's telling them, he's teaching them what the word of God means. That's what we do. We learn how to teach the scriptures. We learn how to study and research. Paul was smarter than any of the Pharisees. He was chief, the scripture says. He surpassed all his, his contemporaries, he says. He was high up there. I mean, people couldn't keep up. What was it? Agrippa that said, Paul, much reading is driving you crazy. You know, he almost converted him too, right? He, much, he, you almost make me want to be a Christian, remember? That's right. <laughs> so Paul is, is, is hitting his hot and heavy, and he's coming with it, and he supports this with all the reference scriptures, and that's what's going on here. All the way, as a matter of fact, from 17 all the way to 41, this is what's taking place here, because I don't think I can get through it. <laughs> <laughs> Tony's going to be mad. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we see Israel's history leads Israel. It leads this audience to him, to Jesus. That was the point of all of this, leading him to Jesus, the promise of the Messiah. The promise or from this man's seed. Let me read this. According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. And that's what Israel history led him to. The next part was God fulfilling his promise to Israel by bringing him to the dead, uh, bringing him or raising him from the dead. And we'll see that uh, he, he, he says it in verse 30. But God. Sorry, uh, but God. You can say, but God, Richard or but God, save Richard, you know, but God. I've heard actually use that. He uses really good. But God who was rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, right? But God loved Israel so much so he raised Jesus from the dead. And I'm just paraphrasing that, but God raised him from the dead. Literally, Jesus was dead. He, they raised him from the tomb. The prophets fell to see him earlier verses here. I'm going to have to end, you guys. So with that being said, uh, Father in heaven, we humbly bow our hearts to you. We give you much thanks for all the work that you've done. And we praise you, Father, and pray for each one here tonight, Lord, that you continue to bless them with uh, wisdom and understanding of your word and acts. And as we continue through, Lord, you continue to reveal to us the work you have for us to do. And I pray for anyone here tonight that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that if their heart is open and they're ready, Lord, that you would just bring them to you. So we thank you, Father, we praise you, and we give you all the blessings and love that you deserve from our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.